value what you have. You live in a society where the inequality has not exploded yet. These are the early warning signals right here. It's flashing red. The system says they're stupid. They can believe, they can internalize that, they can look stupid. They're not stupid. This is the Dependance Podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars, and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And today will be about one of the most pressing social issues of our time, educational inequality, and what we can do about it. In the past, education has long served the function of being the great equalizer. Not your origin or social class, but your talent and effort would determine your level of schooling and future prospects in society. But this engine of emancipation is grinding to a halt. Where you are born and the educational level of your parents increasingly determines the opportunities you get in life. So what to do? In order to find out, we organized a live debate at Comprehensive School Hugo de Groot in Rotterdam South. And one of our speakers there was American sociologist Bowen Paul. In the next 15 minutes or so, you will hear his lecture on growing inequality and its effects, and his take on the policies and programs that can really make a difference. Hello, everybody. Great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, they told me 10 to 15 minutes. I want to keep it running, and we can perhaps come back to the slides, and, uh, and if there's some Q&A, we can make it interactive, and we can dig back uh, into it. Um, boring academic that I am, I'm going to show you PowerPoint. Actually, I'm not an academic anymore, not four days a week. Uh, I worked at the University of Amsterdam for 13 years. Uh, one of the main things I did was study, I went actually from studying toxic schools schools where I worked in the Bronx and uh, in Amsterdam Southeast, which I would say were absolutely poisonous because of the stress levels, uh, to basically looking for what works. I worked on desegregation for a while, politically impossible, and then I moved to what are the programs from California prisons to schools, what are the programs that are potentially scalable that can really drive breakthroughs for at-risk kids? That became my obsession. And this is what we're going to end up with. We're going to start with something a little bit less happy, and then we're going to end up with something that is happy at the end to keep us going. This is a, an image from the tutoring situation, which is the, at the foundation of what my foundation is doing. It's basically one-on-two tutoring, and just think about being a classroom teacher, one on 25. Even if your heart is in it, and even if you have the best of intentions, it's really tough. Some kids are six years behind, five years behind, four years behind. How do you individualize? Really, really tough. And as I was looking through the relevant uh, social scientific literature, I was seeing these tutoring uh, 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 efforts with incredible treatment effects, just unheard of, kids catching up three years in one year. And this one specific approach, high dosage tutoring, looked to me like the most uh, promising. So I advocated to bring it to the Netherlands, helped test it. And then when the results were in, in the United States and here, I said, hey, this is where I can make an impact. I gave up a tenured position. I could live to regret it. Maybe I'll be cleaning circus cages in a couple of years. But anyway, I am now the head of an NGO for four days a week, and I work at the University of Amsterdam for one day a week. So, the bridge. That's where I work, and we're going to end up with the tutoring. First, it feels a little bit like my life story. Weird version of my life story, right? I grew up in the United States. I was born in 1970 in a different 
America. The objective gap between life chances of privileged kids and disadvantaged kids, it was definitely there in 1970, but it has gone like this in 50 years. It has exploded. It's not because of technology, because it didn't happen in Germany, right? It didn't happen here. It's no easy answers. But where are we? This is a bit old, it's from 2009, but it's my favorite slide. I always come back to it. It really is my favorite slide in the whole world. Uh, what you see here is an index of health and social problems. You want to be down here, it says better. You don't want to be up here, it says worse. This, on the other axis, is income inequality. This is low, low income inequality. This is high income inequality. These are the types of things that they use to, to put this index together with uh, health and social problems. So life expectancy, math and literacy, infant mortality, homicide, all these you know, usual suspects, obesity, mental illness, drug addiction, social mobility. You want to live in a society with a good score here, not just if you're poor, also, if you're middle class or rich, everybody stands to gain from living in a society that doesn't have these incredible you know, health problems and social problems. What do we see here? We see an incredible correlation. As the income inequality goes from high to low, you see this convergence from worse to better. So Japan, Sweden, the Netherlands, Finland. What's going on over here? The United States is off the charts almost. You have to make sure it fits onto the screen when you give a talk, literally. It can be literally off the charts. I think since 2009, it's only gotten worse. Uh, I'm gonna come back to that, to this in a little bit, or maybe in the talk we can come back to it. This is from the Dutch Educational Inspectorate, and it's a way of visualizing what has happened from 2009 to 2007 in terms of objective life chances of kids. We're not going to be able to get into all the methods behind it and what it's based on, but if you look at this report, uh, 2019, also ones going back to 2015, 2016, you'll see these things again and again and again. Uh, take it from me. You can look yourself. This is on page 63. You can validate everything I'm saying. You'll see these again and again and again. The early warning signals are upon us. The gap in objective life chances of kids is blowing up sort of doubling between, according to this analysis, between 2009 and 2007. This, this specific one is talking about the effect of parental education as a uh, predictor of how kids get tracked. In, in the Netherlands, we say adviseren. Nobody's getting advised. Kids are getting tracked. It's a euphemism. People, <laughs> 10, 11-year-old kids are getting tracked. It's absurd. So what's going on here? Uh, we see a, almost a, a, a doubling in the, in the uh, predictive value of parental, upli uh, uh, parental educational level. DNA doesn't change that fast. Something else is going on here. Inequality is growing fast. The early warning signals are upon us here in the Netherlands. Um, this is, again, I wanna say, this is before COVID, right? This ends in 2017. Educational inequality was exploding in the years leading up to COVID. This is the first uh, report from the Ministry of Education uh, looking at the National Program uh, for Education, NPO. Here's the Fortgangsreportage. What are we looking at here? It's something that didn't get a lot of news last week when this was splashed all over the, the newspapers. We're looking here at the 1F level. 
So how many kids make it, if you're in the educational field, you probably know this term, it's a reference level, 1F, the fundamental level. This is the absolute minimum level that you're looking for at the end of primary school. This is not what you're aiming for, ideally. This is what the government has classified as the absolute minimum level. Who is getting that level, 1F or lower? And a whole lot of these kids in 1F or lower are kilometers lower, way, way, way down there. So between 2000, um, uh, what years are we talking about? Um, yeah, 17, uh, 19, and 21, right. So this is how many kids were 1F or lower in 17? How many kids were 1F or lower in uh, 19? How many kids were 1F or lower in 21 in the FAMBO? the pre-vocational, lowest, most stigmatized track in the Dutch educational system. And here you see, it was pretty damn high in 2017. 58% of the kids, 1F or lower. It raised up in 2019, and here we see the COVID effect, people would argue. I'm sure there's other things like Instagram that are playing a role here, but uh, <laughs> COVID effect, it's, it's pretty radical growth. This is, of course, for... Um, uh, reading comprehension. This is for math uh, calculation, it was just called. 76% already were at the absolute minimum low level or lower. 78% in 2019. 86% right now of the kids that we're sending into pre-vocational education are at an absolute minimum level or way under. And I mean three, four, five years under. It's a bloodbath. This is a bloodbath. People don't like to talk about shitty schools. Our school's great. My school used to be fucked up, now it's great. You hear it every time. People don't want to talk about the bloodbath. Also, we could talk about PISA scores going down, international 15-year-olds tanking. We've got a problem here, guys. <laughs> In Baltimore, nobody wanted to face up to it 50 years ago. Guess what? It's off the charts now. You have real ghettos, you don't turn the clock back. Kuster what you hept. Value what you have. You live in a society where the inequality has not exploded yet. These are the early warning signals right here. It's flashing red. Are we going to face up to it? Are we going to look back 50 years? Ah, didn't do so much. Here we go. Here is uh, an example. Um, of the effects of high dosage tutoring, this one very specific tutoring approach that my um, NGO is providing. Uh, we studied it the same way you all demanded that the vaccine that you put in your arm was studied with randomized controlled trials, right? How many of you have the Putin vaccine? <laughs> no RCT, you don't put it in your arm, right? We demand randomized controlled trials for all this stuff, right? Why not for interventions for disadvantaged kids? Why do we not have randomized controlled trials to pinpoint the effects for these kids? Maybe because we don't care about them that much. You tell me. Maybe I'm being cynical here. Anyway, we had a randomized controlled trial. My team looked at this. I was not head of the uh, NGO at this point. Started Mundus Collegia, Amsterdam New West. Mundus Collegia, the kids come in on average three and a half years behind in reading and math. A lot of these kids are born in the Netherlands. They're not like just a whole bunch of Syrian refugees or something. They come into secondary school, 
tracked often at age 10, 11, 12. School directors say, oh, you don't even have to take the CITO. We know you want to work with your hands. You're going to go take a practical education at Mundus Collegia. Kids are on the ground. Some of them are suicidal. They're devastated. They come in three and a half years behind. The system says all kinds of nice things, like advisiera and uh, you're a great kid. You're practically oriented. Um, the kids are on the ground when they come into a school like this. They don't believe that they can learn. They, they think the one institution in their life that means anything, schools have told them they're stupid. So what's going on here? We looked at the control, that's the, uh, the non-tutor kids, and the treatment, and we split it up into this category, the fanbeo basis, the, the lowest level of uh, prevocational, and pro, praktaik education. Sort of a hybrid between special education and uh, fanbeo basis. So let's look at the, these are just raw scores on a math test. We're trying to get the kids up to 1F. Again, they're three years behind, four years behind the 1F level. I, I mentioned that, a lot of kids are way below the 1F level. These are just the raw scores. So the, let's start with the treatment, uh, sorry, the control basis and the treatment basis. They take the test in September when the intervention starts. They have the same exact score, the same baseline score. There was only money for five and a half months. We wanted to do it for a whole year. There was only money for this for five and a half months. So we gave it to them for five and a half months. Here's the baseline. The control kids grow 17% in terms of closing the gap to 1F. 17%. That means they need three and a half, four years, also with the summer melt, maybe four and a half years, to get to the 1F level. They need their entire secondary educational career to get to where they were supposed to be at the absolute minimum at the end of primary school. It's just not working. These kids, same baseline, five and a half months in January, they took another test, they closed 71% of the gap. If this thing had gone on for an entire year, even if the learning curve closes, on average, these kids are above 1F in one year. The system says they're stupid, they can believe, they can internalize that, they can look stupid, they're not stupid. They were unskilled. They can become skilled if they have, you said, attention, if they have these meaningful relationships, somebody who can tailor what they need for them. Same with the pro kids. They started at the same level. You could say the educational system is correct because they started at a lower level, right? Um, the, the control kids, that's this line, they closed uh, also 17% of the gap vis-a-vis 1F. The treatment kids, that's the green dotted line, they closed 43% of the gap. 43% of the gap vis-a-vis 1F in five and a half months. What do you see here that's, ama that's amazing? They passed the kids that were allowed to go to the FAMBO because they're so-called smarter. These kids are told, You're, you don't have what it takes to go to the FAMBO basis. If you give them what they need to thrive in just five and a half months, they can outpace, catch up with the kids who are smart enough to go to the FAMBO. We need evidence-based, scalable interventions to partner with schools that are in trouble if we're going to address this on a wide level. Sure, some uh, principles are amazing, some teams are amazing, and you can have uh, flagships, really successful high-poverty schools, turnaround schools. It's great. It's not a scalable structural option. It's not going to work for thousands and thousands of kids op zout in Rotterdam, in Amsterdam North and Amsterdam New West. It's not going to work. I want scalable solutions. 
because I'm from the United States and I've seen ghettos and I know what happens if you don't get your shit together. That's my story. So here we go, overview. So going back to the four slides, we all stand to gain. Go to Baltimore, take a look. You will see, we all stand to gain by reducing educational equality, not letting educational and income equality become sickening as it has in the last 50 years in the United States. It's not just about helping the advantage. It's about evolved self-interest. Evolved self-interest. Also in Vosenar. They stand to gain. They don't know it. They want to pay less taxes and have a Tesla, but they stand to gain. Two, in many wealthy countries, including the Netherlands, educational equality was already growing before COVID, in part because of shadow education. Wealthy kids, resource parents, give their kids private tutoring. Sometimes one-on-one, sometimes small group instruction. Poor kids don't get that. Also, of course, just the bourgeois dinner table. But on top of that, middle-class parents will you know, pay kids. Oh, he's not on pace to get at least the havo. 5,000, 10,000, whatever it has to take, because he's got to get at least the havo. COVID has contributed to educational inequality, especially disadvantage of getting hurt. Everybody predicted it. Everybody went online. My entire department, sociology department, said this is definitely going to hammer the poor kids. It's not rocket science. It's exactly what we're saying. And the solution, if we want something scalable, it's got to be evidence-based interventions offered by proven effective providers. If you have a great intervention and horrible implementation by an organization that just can't execute on the ground consistently, it's not a very interesting solution. So you need both. You need evidence-based solutions, something intense and strong enough to move the, move the needle. You need partnerships with schools, policymakers, et cetera, et cetera, to support NGOs like my own, not the only one. And we need to really move on this, driving breakthroughs for disadvantaged kids and their caregivers, including their teachers. That's, I think, our, our, our least, uh, uh, it's our most promising uh, approach if we, if we want to get serious about this. Thank you for your attention. You were listening to the Dependence podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarsen and myself Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio. And graphic design is by Studio Space. The Dependence is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the Municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast. And check our website, thedependence.eu for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.